0: How are we doing, everybody? Good, good, good. Um, who was at uh, community group last night? Raise your hand if you're Awesome. Uh, man, I had a, a really, really awesome time uh, just hanging out with people. It, it's always really encouraging when you come together with brothers and sisters in Christ, uh, when you have that opportunity to talk with one another, to, to share with one another. Uh, we spent time just talking about um, issues in our life and, and praying over Uh, each other. And so if you're not doing that, if you're not plugged into that, uh, you you are severely missing out. Um, And and, and I really think you're missing out of a very vital part of your walk with Christ. Um, When you don't attend community group regularly, uh, you miss out on something that that is incredibly vital to your walk with the Lord. And so let me just encourage you guys in that uh, to to faithfully attend. I I promise you'll you'll be blessed. So um, before we get started, before we get into the text tonight, um, many of you have, uh, have heard my, uh, my conversion story. Um, I, I've talked about it several times. Uh, I was um, in the eighth grade. I was going into high school, and um, I was at a, a beach camp, a beach summer camp, right, with a youth group. Who's, who's been on those before? Been down to the beach with, with youth group, all right? So I was down there. Uh, I, I went down there with a very specific purpose, uh, to sneak away, to smoke cigarettes and make out with girls. Uh, that's what I had went down there to do. Um, Instead, the Lord uh, decided to save me, change me uh, forever. Uh, There was a short, bald man on stage who was proclaiming the gospel. Um, I had heard the gospel tons of times before. I'd heard the gospel message preached, uh, but for some reason, uh, something was different about that. Uh, that time that I heard it uh, and and the scales were taken off of my eyes and I became acutely aware of my sin and my shame and uh, all of that in my life. And and I realized that I needed a savior, got saved um, right then and there uh, on a dirty hotel floor um, in Daytona Beach, Florida. Um, So I have a tendency, and some of you guys know me, whenever I do something, I just go all the way. I mean, I, I jump in with both feet, it is, it is my nature, it's how I'm made, and so um, I, I jumped into the, the Christian life with both feet. I mean, uh, my, my pappy always tells me, if you're going to be a bear, you know, be a grizzly, and so that's, you know, th- that's what I was about. And so I came back, I became the youth pastor's assistant, um, I, I was preaching on a regular basis at like, you know... 15, 16, I started a Bible study in my high school uh, that started out in a hallway, uh, like a side hallway in our high school, and it grew to 10 people, then 20 people, then 50 people, and the administration ended up just giving us the band room because, I mean, they were just tired of us cluttering up the hallway as I would preach in the middle of the hall. And and so I just just dove in, uh, just just headlong um, into it. Uh, and and I loved it, and and I saw people get saved, and I was able to lead people to Christ, and lead ministries, and all these great things, Um, but then, there's generally that a lot, um, but then, the church that I was going to um, fell apart, Uh, and it was a rather nasty uh, kind of church breakup, Um, and After that, I walked away from church, and because I wasn't connected to other brothers and sisters in Christ, because I wasn't walking in community with them, slowly but surely, I began to compromise this, compromise that. Um, And and then, there again, because I go all out with everything, um, I jumped headlong into this way of living. Okay, Uh, So, you know, big into alcohol, drugs, sex, you know, just, I mean, I'm going to you know, headlong this way or headlong this way. Uh, I'm going to jump headlong into this and begin to walk in a, a cycle of destructiveness until I found myself in jail, okay? Uh, so at that point, you know, when the, when the gates lock behind you, uh, those of you who have been there, it is a, a bone-chilling sound that I don't think anybody ever forgets. If you've been, the way the door goes, and you're like, oh, that's awful, you know? Um, so when I'm there, uh, I, I realized, hey, um, I like, uh, you know, cowboy boots and vests, not this orange jumpsuit that I have on. Uh, so I don't want to be here anymore. Plus, the food is not awesome. I don't know if you guys know that or not. Um, so the clothing and the food was terrible, so I decided, hey, I don't, I don't want to be here anymore. Um, really what was happening is, is the Holy Spirit was uh, doing a, a, a work on my heart and, and really opening up my eyes to some, some things in my life. So then I come out of that, and now I'm back in both feet with Jesus. I, am, uh, you know, I, I became a pastor, I got married, uh, launched out, planted a church, having kids, preaching again. Uh, So so that's kind of my story in in a nutshell, and I think a lot of people would have a very similar testimony in the sense that I was walking with Jesus, um, I have a season of rebellion, uh, but then I came back to the Lord. How many many of you, that that describes you, okay? Okay, lots of you, but lots of you. Um, The question is, and and it's actually going to be addressed in the text tonight, in my season of rebellion... Was I saved? Like if I was walking with Jesus faithfully, walking with Him, loving Him, serving Him, but then all of a sudden I'm manifesting all of this poisonous fruit in my life. I'm um, I'm doing all these bad things, all these sinful things. Um, was I saved at that point? I mean, I came back to Jesus. So so did I get resaved? Or was I not saved to begin with? I mean, this is a very confusing question, isn't it? I mean, th- this idea of um, can a person lose their salvation is, is a big, big topic in, in Christian debate. I, I don't know if you guys are aware of that. People have been debating this, like, since Jesus left. You know, he ascends into heaven, and I'm sure one disciple turns and looks to the other. Hey, can we lose our salvation? I mean, it's like instantly they start debating this idea of can a person lose their salvation, okay? So um, what I want to do tonight before we get into the text is I want to kind of present to you camp one, camp two, okay? I do this often, right? I'm going to talk about this group over here that believes this way, this group over here that believes this way. Uh, Then we're going to put a gun to your heads and make you choose a camp, okay? Okay. We're probably not going to do that. But um, so I, I, I want to faithfully walk through these things. Let me kind of preface this as well. This is an in-house debate. Um, if, you, if you're in Camp 1 or Camp 2, it doesn't matter. We still love you. You're welcome here at Gospel Community Church. We take a very strong stance on which camp we stand in. But if you don't or if you're in the opposite camp, it's okay. We promise not to tar and feather you. Um, so it, it's okay. But this is an in-house debate. Um, This is not anything to get mad about, throw things about, yell at each other, debate it fervently and healthfully, right, as brothers and sisters, but we don't debate this as enemies. That's two very different things, okay? Uh, So here is um, camp one. Camp one is you can lose your salvation, okay? So what do they believe about salvation, okay? Now, on points A and B, we are going to agree. So on points A and B that I'm about to give you, camp one and two agree on. Okay, here's what the two camps agree on. A, salvation comes through Jesus and his atoning work on the cross. Both camp one and camp two say yes. Salvation comes through Jesus Christ and his atoning work on the cross. And B, they will agree on this as well, you must believe on him for salvation. Camp one, camp two, both agree. Salvation comes through Jesus' atoning work on the cross, and you must believe on Him in order to be saved. Both camps agree. At this point, everybody is best friends, you know, wearing matching sweaters and riding tandem bikes. We're all best friends right now, okay? We all agree. But, camp one who believes you can lose your salvation will believe. Um, And If you walk away from him or reject him, he will let you go. Okay, so salvation comes through Jesus Christ. You must believe on him and you must keep believing on him. When you stop believing on him or walk away from him, Jesus will let you go okay, God the Father, God the Spirit, jesus they, they will say, if this is the path that you want to go down, if you want to deny me, if you want to ignore me, if you want to become an atheist, agnostic, Buddhist, Hindu, um, whatever other religion you want to partake in, I will let you go, okay? that—that That is their view. that That's where they stand. They have what is called a synergistic, everybody say synergistic? Synergistic view of salvation, okay? Meaning that, You work together with God. Synergism, working together. You work together with God for your salvation. Here's a picture. Um, Everyone is out there, right? All of humanity. God says, I'm extending my hand, okay? Here it is. Here is my hand of salvation. Whoever wants it, come get it, okay? And some people, those who choose him, choose to believe in him, they reach up and they take God's hand. Now, if at any point you decide, I don't want to hold God's hand, I don't want to be a part of this, I, I, I don't want to continue to work with him for my salvation, he will let you go, okay? That, that is the synergistic view uh, of salvation, and then uh, what happens as far as persevering uh, is concerned. That, that is camp one. Now, camp two. Camp two believes you cannot lose your salvation, Right? So, there again, what do we agree on? We agree that salvation comes through Jesus and his atoning work on the cross. In addition, we believe that you must believe on him alone for salvation. We both agree. Now, here again, here's C, where we kind of diverge. And since your salvation is in the hands of God, he will not let you go. Okay? This is monergistic. Everybody say monergistic monergistic view of salvation. Mono meaning what? One. So he is the only one working. Synergistic, you work together for your salvation. Monergistic, he's the one who does it. So here's the picture in a monergistic view. God extends his hand. I am here. I am Jesus Christ. Come on the cross to die in your place for your sins. Come and take my hand and be saved. The problem is we believe no one takes it. We are dead in our sin, dead in our trespasses. No one takes it. So God, being loving, gracious, and kind, reaches down and grabs his kids and has them in his hand. So even if his kids are screaming and fighting, anybody have screaming and fighting kids? Even if his kids are screaming and fighting, he does not let them go because he is a good dad. Okay? Okay? So the, those are the two uh, opposing views. Uh, there again, in-house debate. The people in Camp 1 are not dumb or silly. Uh, that they, they have some verses that they point to, uh, but we here at Gospel Community Church, we land firmly in which camp? Camp 2. We land firmly in Camp 2. We believe you cannot lose your salvation. We believe in a monergistic, single-handed. God reaches down. He grabs you if you're his kid, and he will not let you go. Do we have verses? Absolutely. Who wants some verses? Yeah, yeah. Let's get into some verses, all right? Um, There again, this is really, really important for you to know. Who in here is engaged in this debate ever in your Christian walk? Who has been in this debate with someone in your Christian walk? Okay, if you have it, you probably will. Okay, so this is really important. I encourage all of you, write these verses down, okay? So, so that way when you get into this debate, or maybe it's not a debate, maybe it's just somebody coming to you, genuinely asking questions. Uh, maybe they're like, man, I, I was walking with the Lord, but I did this. I, I walked in this sin, and now I, I think I've got to get re-saved or re-baptized. Or, um, and, and this has really been something that's kind of been promulgated here in, in churches in the South, Um, I think largely to drive up the number of salvations they get to write down on their little pieces of paper to pat themselves on the back so that they can go, oh, you're already saved? Well, uh, have have you sinned? Yeah, I did. Okay, well, you need to get re-saved or you need to get re-baptized. And and so because of, I think, poor teaching, uh, because of a need or a want to, hey, look how many people we had saved Well, they were already, anyway, um, so I think this has just been poor teaching, especially here in the South, where there's a church on every street corner, so um, this is important for you to know, I want you to know these verses, I want you to write them down, tattoo them on your forehead, so do we have verses, let's go, Uh, we're going to mainly stay in John, okay, I just want to show you, because we're studying the book of John, I want to stay in John, go to John chapter 3, go over to John chapter 3, I'm just going to hang out in John, it's not going to come up on the screen, you're just going to have to travel with me. John chapter 3, let's look at uh, verse 36. John chapter 3, verses 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Okay, go to uh, chapter 5, verse 24. Chapter 5, verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life, okay? They, they have it. They possess it. What's the it? Eternal, meaning forever. Now, uh, what Camp 1 will want to do is they'll want to take that eternal life and really focus on the quality of it, okay? It's not necessarily that it's eternal, meaning forever, but it's eternal meaning you have a really good quality of life. It's an abundant life, okay? And we would say yes to both. That when it says you as a believer in Christ, you have eternal life, we believe that at conversion you get it. It is gifted to you. You have it. You have eternal life, meaning you have abundant life, and it is eternally lived in heaven with Jesus, face to face with him forever, Everybody get, you, do you see that in that text? Okay, so, so we wouldn't say that it's just more of an abundant, like when it says eternal, it really means abundant. We say, uh, when it says eternal, it means eternal. So, so we believe you have it when you become a believer. Let's look at some more verses. John chapter six, verse 37. John chapter six, verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will Never cast out. Camp one will say, when he says never, he doesn't mean never. (laughs) Now, here's how Camp one will define it Uh, they will say, okay, Jesus is the one who will never cast you out. Okay, now, if you choose to cast yourself out, that's a whole different story. Okay, Um, but we believe when Jesus here says, Those who come to me, I will never cast out. We believe he will never cast you out. Even if you're walking in a season of rebellion, even if you're mad at him, throwing rocks at him, even if you claim yourself to be uh, an atheist or agnostic or whatever, we believe he will never, never cast you out. Uh, Let's look down at uh, verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me, or sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Okay? I will raise him up. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, but once he's drawn to me, once, once the unbeliever is drawn to salvation, is drawn to Jesus, he makes a promise. This is a promise from Jesus I will. I'm going to, I will raise them up on the last day. They will have eternal life. I will raise them up. If they come to me, I will never cast them out. They are mine. That, that, that is the language that, that is used all throughout Scripture. So, so the big idea is they will have eternal life. I will never cast them out, and I will raise them up. Okay? Okay? Are you seeing the, the pattern here of when it talks about salvation? It talks about what happens in the end. This is a repeated, I will never cast them out. They have eternal life. They are my sheep. Are, are you seeing that language? Yeah, nod your heads. Very good. Okay, Bible heads out there. So uh, is this just John, though? Is this just John kind of saying this a bunch? No. Uh, let's go Ephesians. Let's go Ephesians. I'm just going to show you one outside of John. That way we don't get too far outside of John. Just because I want to put a a, a nail in this in this coffin, okay? I just want to put the final one. Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 through 14. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 through 14. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. Okay? When you heard the gospel and you believed in Jesus, you received the Holy Spirit as a seal, as a permanent seal. You were sealed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay? Okay? In addition, you are guaranteed, okay? That, that's, a, that's a pretty interesting word there. You are sealed and guaranteed. This word guaranteed gives the idea of a down payment, okay? Um, you have you, been given the down payment. Uh, you are a possession of Jesus until either you die and see him face to face or he comes back and gets you. He's paid the down payment and, and the evidence of that is your infilling, your indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Okay, You guys with that? So, so when you go to buy a house and you sign all the papers and you make the down payment on the house, you give them the down payment, it's guaranteed that house is yours. You own it at that point. Okay, Just like us, um, we have been sealed and guaranteed that when we die, we're going to see Jesus face to face or he's going to come back and get us. We've been sealed with the Holy Spirit and it is guaranteed Okay, so uh, the language back from the top is that when you become a Christian, you have eternal life, he will never cast you out, he will raise you up, and you have been sealed and guaranteed. Okay, what's the summary? <laughs> we can say without a shadow of a doubt that once you are saved, you are always saved. Okay, once you are saved, you are always saved. Um this is just a sidebar or a side note. Um, here is one thing that kind of unnerves me about uh, Camp 1's position. I believe that Camp 1's position robs some power from the cross. Okay? It robs power of the cross by giving to it uncertainty. Here's what I mean. Um, in Jesus' thinking on the cross, is he on the cross laying down his life for the sheep hoping that some will come and that those who come will persevere of their own accord? Or is Jesus on the cross, knowing without a shadow of a doubt, is Jesus on the cross absolutely certain that his sheep will come, and when they come, they will remain? Jesus was not uncertain about his mission. He was not looking down from the cross, looking at the one disciple who stuck around, thinking, oh, this is the only guy. John's the only one. I, I, hope, I hope people come to me. I hope they do. I hope my sheep hear my voice, and I hope the sheep that do hear my voice, I hope that they remain in me. I hope that they keep believing on me. I don't think that's what's happened to the cross, because when Jesus is on the cross, he says, it is Finished, meaning I have come to lay down my life for my sheep. I have paid the ransom for them. My sheep will hear my voice. They will come, and those that come I will never cast out. Um, and so I think that camp one's position robs power from the cross by robbing its certainty of the salvation of the sheep and the perseverance of them unto eternal life. Does that make sense? Everybody with that? Okay. Um, so let's ask this question in conclusion. Um, what about those who walk away from the faith? Okay, we, We've just said, once saved, always saved. We haven't really answered the question of, um, what about when somebody does walk away from the faith? What about me when I went on whatever it was that I did, on, on my little rebellion spree? Um, was I saved then? Um, here's how we would answer that question um, those who walk away and never return were never saved. Okay? First John says it this way. They went out from us because they never were of us. That's what first John says. So can someone walk away from the faith on a season of rebellion and return to the faith? Yes. And they never were unsaved, when I was being a complete and total moron, Jesus was sending people into my life begging me, come back, come back, come back home, I love you. Jesus was the one uh, who portrays himself as, as the father in the story of the prodigal son pacing on top of the hill hoping that the prodigal son would return home. I never stopped being a son of God, I was simply off being a moron, okay, okay. Uh, and, and, and that's the same way. People can walk away and in, in, in walk in seasons of rebellion. It doesn't mean that they're unsaved. It means they're just being stupid. It, it means they're acting in a way that is contrary to their true nature because what, what the scripture will tell us is when you get saved, you become a new creature or a new creation. You are totally radically transformed. And just because you act outside of your new given nature doesn't mean that you're re-transformed back into the old dead man. Uh, but, but it just means you're acting like a dummy. It just means you're being rebellious. And so for people who walk away from the faith and never come back, um, it means they weren't ever saved. But people who walk in a season of rebellion and then come back, that they didn't lose their salvation in that time period, okay? Now, there, there are a lot of people, though. There are a lot of people who are seemingly saved, right, and then they leave and never come back, and you're like, man, I was almost certain, Okay? I really thought that guy was saved, but now he's, you know, off doing whatever, and he never came back to the faith. Um, well, uh, okay, here's a good example. Uh, you remember Jesus at the Last Supper? He says, well, one of you guys are going to betray me. And they start looking around. Well, who, who is that guy? Why didn't they automatically know it was Judas? Because he blended in so Well? I mean, he did what they did, he said what they said, he walked the walk and talked the talk, but he was not really saved. And so there will be people who are very convincing, but really at the depth of their soul, they don't love Jesus. They don't want to be with his people. They don't want to serve his church. They don't have stirring affections for the person and work of Jesus Christ. They don't focus their life or center their life around Jesus. They're they're putting on a show, they're putting on a facade, okay? Is everybody, you guys understand where we're coming from? You with me? Very good, okay. Um, So, here's the big idea. Um, What we're saying is, if a blind man receives sight, you're never going to see that blind man walking around with dual pirate eye patches on. Because seeing is too glorious. You understand? So, so if a guy is blind from birth, he's never seen anything. He gets miraculously healed. The the next six weeks, that guy isn't going to go. Eh, sunset isn't all it's cracked up to be. <laughs> seeing is so glorious, it's so magnificent, he is going to want to see more and more and more. And for those who are truly saved, truly, truly saved, what they want is more and more and more of Jesus. They may walk in a season of rebellion, but really at the heart of what they want is more and more Jesus because he is so glorious. Just as the blind man looks upon the sunset and says, this is glorious, our soul, when it has been regenerated, looks upon Jesus and says, this is glorious. So once you're saved, once you're his, you may walk away for a while, but you'll be back. And those who don't come back They've never seen it. They've never tasted it. They've never experienced it. Okay? Um, So, we're going to see this in the text tonight. I wanted to do all that work beforehand, so I would have to do less work when we actually get into the text. So that's where we stand. That's Gospel Community Church's standpoint. I hope I've argued well from Scripture. Um, So what I want to do is I want to give you an overview of the text tonight. Um, When I give overviews, I'm not just giving you an overview of where you're going, I'm hoping that in giving you these overviews of the text, I'm helping you learn how to study the Bible, okay? Doing an overview of a text is a very uh, useful resource, a very useful tool. I encourage you in your own personal study, in your own personal Bible reading time, create overviews for yourself, Okay? Just look at the overflow of the text and go, okay, I think step one of the text, this happens. Step two, I think this happens. Step three, this happens. Okay? So I'm hoping when I give you these overviews, you're learning how to read the Bible, you're learning how to study the Bible. Let's look at the overview of the end of chapter 10. Okay? Here's what we're going to see in the text tonight. Number one, John will give us a backdrop of the story and then the Pharisees will ask Jesus a dumb question. Okay. So John is going to give us a, a backdrop. Okay, he's going to paint the mountains and the trees. Okay, um, he, he's going to give us the backdrop. He's going to do uh, Bob Ross and that. The, yeah, so he's going to do the happy little trees and mountains, right? And then later on, we're going to see the cabin in the middle with the you know, smoke coming out of the chimney. But what John is going to do is he's going to give us the backdrop. He's going to tell us that this is the Feast of Dedication. Um, and he's going to tell us that uh, this is, they're walking around in Solomon's uh, colonnade. And so it's important to know he's going to paint some backdrop for us. And then to the conclusion of that, the Pharisees come to Jesus and they ask a really dumb question. Okay? Um, which is okay, because I ask Jesus dumb questions all the time. So, number two, Jesus answers their question... By restating what he already said, because they did not get it the first time, or the second time, or the third time, or the fourth, or the fifth, or the sixth, or the seventh, or the 32nd, or the, So, so they come to Jesus, they ask the same old question, they ask this question again, right, and he gives them the same old answer because they simply don't get it. Here's the question. Jesus, if you're the Messiah, just plainly tell us. We just want to know. Really? Really? He, he's already plainly told them. He's told them plainly. He's told them loudly. He's told them softly. He's stood on one foot and told them. He's told them in a metaphor. He's told them in, in an allegory. He's told them in a simile. He's to, I mean, what more do you want from the guy? Um, he, he's told them. He, he's told them, but they come and ask the question again, and so he tells them uh, again. He, he, tells, he tells them again. Number three, all hell breaks loose and they try to murder Jesus. So at the conclusion of him explaining to them yet again who he is, what he's come to do, the fact that he's going to preserve the saints till the end, he adds on this statement I and the Father are one, and they lose their minds. All hell breaks loose, and they try to murder him. They, they try to kill Jesus. Number four, uh, Jesus stalls, I think, with a quirky and sharp theological argument found in Psalms. So there's a really interesting, odd statement in here. I'm gonna do my best to clear it up. Maybe I will, maybe I want. There again, he's Jesus. He gets to say, he gets to say what he wants. So what happens is he explains it to him. I and the father are one. They pick up rocks to throw out and kill. And, and he says, uh, well, you know, the law says that um, you are gods. And so if I've been consecrated and uh, I come from the father, why is it such a big deal that I say I'm the son of God? <laughs> It's like, okay, Jesus, you know, give us a hint here. Uh, so, so maybe um, he's throwing out an argument, and I'm going to explain it to you. We're going to go back and look at uh, what, he, what he means there. Um, I think that he's buying himself time for a very specific reason, okay? He gives a theological argument for a very specific reason, and here is what I think his specific reason is. Jesus reveals why he stalls them to give them yet one more chance to believe. And then lastly, some people believe and some don't. Okay, that, that, that's where we're going with, with, the, with the text tonight. That's, that's where we're headed. He tells them who he is yet again. I and the Father are one. He explains to them about the sheep again. We're gonna talk about sheep again tonight. Um, he, he's gonna tell them that the sheep will hear his voice again. I and the Father are one again. He said this again. They try to kill him again again. He stalls so that he can beg them one last time to come to him and to have a a heart change. If you guys miss everything that that I say tonight, if you want to go to sleep or play Angry Birds on your phone, that's fine, do that from here on out. Um, Jesus is about heart change, okay? Again and again and again. We've seen him have argument after argument after argument with, with the same guys saying the same things, them asking the same questions and Jesus giving the same response again and again and again. And so Jesus is about heart change. And so why does he keep saying it? Why does he keep begging them to come? Why does he keep doing it? Because he is concerned about their hearts changing. Gospel Community Church, hear me. I am concerned about your heart changing. So every week we come here, every week we sing songs, every week I'm going to preach the same message. I have one sermon. My my one sermon is Jesus. So when you come in here, I'm going to preach Jesus. We're going to sing songs about Jesus. Why? Because like Jesus, I want your hearts to change. I want my heart to change. I want to be conformed more into the image of the Son of God each day. Every time I come here, I don't come here just so I can yell at people. I don't come here just so I can put on my Britney Spears head mic and and do what I'm doing right now. I, I come here so that my heart might be transformed through the preaching of the gospel message so that when we hear about the name and the fame and the glory of Jesus, my very heart might be transformed, my desires might be changed, so that I press more into Jesus and I discover more, greater, and deeper joy. That's why Jesus does what he does in this text. That's why we do what we do. We want to plant more churches. We want to keep doing this so that Jesus is proclaimed, so that people discover him for what he really and truly is, and in their lives get greater and deeper joy. That's what we're about. That's what Jesus is about in this text. And so that's what he does. Let's take a look. uh, Verses 22. 22 through 24. At the time of the Feast of Dedication took place in Jerusalem, it was winter, and Jesus was walking around the temple colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. So it's the Feast of Dedication. Um, What in the world is the Feast of Dedication? Well, uh, you guys ready for your history lesson? Everybody get your glasses on, push them up. Right? Nerd up for this. Uh, In 164 through 175 BC, uh, there was a ruler uh, named Antiochus Epiphanes. Anyone know him personally? Have you met him? He's been dead a long time. Probably not. So uh, there was this guy named Antiochus Epiphanes. He was a Syrian king. What he did, uh, you know, 160, 170 years before Jesus shows up on the scene, He and all his boys roll into Jerusalem, uh, blow everything in the city up. They kill 80,000 Jews, and they send another 80,000 Jews off into uh, slavery. And then what Antiochus Epiphanes does is he loves Greek culture. Um, He loves Greek philosophy. He loves Greek religion, all that stuff. So he takes the temple in Jerusalem and turns it into a Greek worship center. He turns the outer courts of the Jewish temple into brothels. He takes the inner courts, the holiest of holies, where they would make sacrifices. And I mean, like the inner sanctum and in the holies of holies and other places where they make sacrifices. And he began to sacrifice to Zeus and other pagan gods. Antiochus Epiphanes made it illegal for people to have a Bible. Okay, the, the Old Testament law. The, it was illegal for people to have it. And if women would um, circumcise their sons they would actually crucify the women and they would hang their babies around their necks. This guy was no joke, okay? He, he, he wasn't playing. He, he comes in and totally destroys and wrecks. And you have to understand the, the old uh, way the Jewish religion, that, the way that system worked, I mean, the temple was the center. It, I mean, it's where they went to worship. It's where they went to get cleansed of their sins. It's where they made their sacrifice. I mean, it's, it was it. And so for, for this guy to come in and do such a thing was just horrendous, okay? So just like in any good story, uh, a, a hero rises up. Okay, this guy's name was Judas Maccabeus, and he rises up, him and his brother, and they gather their band of dudes, and they roll in, and they overthrow uh, the, the Syrian king, and they take the temple back, and they go, and they, they cleanse the temple. They, clean, they you know, get out all the, the brothel stuff, and they, they cleanse the altars, and they do all that stuff, and they, and they set the temple back up so that people can come back in and worship God and begin to make sacrifices and be atoned for their sins, so on and so forth. So when they did that, it was around December, the month of Kislev, um, around the 25th. And so they created this ceremony called the Feast of Dedication, where they dedicated the temple back to God, okay? They would do that, and they would take candles, and they would light them, much like we know today as Hanukkah, okay? So, so that's where Hanukkah comes from. So that, that is the Feast of Dedication. So John is telling us this for a very important reason, Okay? This is kind of John going, it was the feast of dedication. Remember when Justin Maccabeus or Judas Maccabeus rose up to come in and cleanse the temple? It's the feast of dedication, and Jesus is here. Just as the hero rose up to come save the day, guess who now is going to rise up to come save the day? Guess who comes to cleanse the temple with his blood? Guess who comes to dedicate the temple back to God after the religious system has broken it and messed it up and turned it into something that it's not supposed to be? Now Jesus is going to rise up and he is going to come in and he is going to go to the cross and instead of Justin Maccabeus coming in with his sword to chop the head off of the Assyrian king, uh, Jesus comes in not with a sword, but Jesus conquers with the cross. You see, Jesus is the paradoxical king. He doesn't come in as warrior king to to slay the enemies of the Jewish people, but he comes in as the humble king to slay the greatest enemy, sin. And he does it on the cross. And so as the the Jewish people went in and rededicated the temple, Jesus cleanses the temple in the same way with his blood. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Feast of Dedication, just as Jesus is the fulfillment of the Passover, of the Feast of Booths, and all the other feasts that, that the Jewish people had. Jesus fulfills it. That's John is going wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Here comes Jesus. Feast of dedication, and Jesus was there, okay? In addition, he's walking around in, this is all kind of background, he's walking around in Solomon's Colonnade. This was a area in the temple uh, that had big colonnades and roofs, and it was very enclosed. Uh, in December, it's cold. Uh, there are driving rains uh, in that area, and so Jesus is probably in there, you know, kind of hiding from the driving rains and winds, and he's walking with his disciples, um, teaching them, okay? That, that's, that's all background uh, of what's happening um, in, the, in the text, okay? Uh, so it says that they were gathered around him. The Jewish people come and they they gather around Jesus, right? What do you think their intentions are? They've got him cornered in Solomon's colonnade. They have him cornered, blocked in, roof, walls. We got you now. They surround him. They gather around him to ask him this question. And this isn't a bad question, is it? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. We just want to know. We just want to know if you're the Christ. That sounds like a very legitimate question, doesn't it? The problem is we've seen these guys' hearts. We've seen their intentions time and time again. They're coming in because they want Jesus to make his outlandish claims like he's faithful to do, and he's going to do it again in this text. Jesus will claim that he's God, and they will get him for blasphemy, and they're going to throw rocks at him till he's dead so that they can kill him so that he will be out of their hair. So that people will stop following Jesus, so that people will will no longer listen to him, so that they will gain back their money, their power, and their their fame. That's the big idea of why they're asking this question. Verse 25 through 30. Jesus answered them, I told you. I told you and you did not believe. The works I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe Because you are not part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice. And I know them. And they follow me. I give them eternal life. And they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father has given them to me. He is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. Hmm. Um, I told you. Tell us plainly, I already told you. At the end of chapter eight, we see this exact same thing. He says, before Abraham was, I am. You can't get any more plain than that. He makes that statement, what do they do? They pick up stones to stone him, to throw at him. He has already clearly, plainly, emphatically told them, I am God. I am equal with the Father. He's, he's already told them, clearly, clearly right? He, he's already said it. And then he even backs it up. This is how humble um, and, and compassionate and patient Jesus is, that he doesn't just say, I already told you, and walk away. But he says, I told you, and, and my works bear witness. R- remember me? Remember like the, the big jars that they filled up with water, and I turned them into wine? Remember the bread I, I fed a whole bunch of people with? Remember all of, remember the guy I spit in the mud and and, and I put mud on his eyes and he could see again. Do, do you remember all these works that I've done? My works bear witness to the fact that I am who I say I am. I, I've, already, I've already told you and my works, they, they bear witness about that simple fact. Okay? Verse 26, but you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. I've already explained it to you, I've already told it to you, not only have I done it, but I've also shown you. I've shown you, I've told you, I did both of those things, and you don't believe, why don't they believe? He explains it very clearly, verse 26, they don't believe because you are not a part of my flock. Then he says this, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Sheep, listen, sheep intrinsically know the voice of Jesus. I saw that um, very early on when we were at the hospital with Lydia. Um, She was in her little isolate unit, and the doctors and stuff would come in, and and they would talk. Other people would come in, and they would say things. I would walk into that room, and what I would speak Lydia would react in a way that she did not react to anyone else. She, she would open her eyes up real big, or she would take her tiny little hands and go like that. Like She would just you know, freak out when I, would, when I would talk or when I would speak. Why? Because she intrinsically knew my voice. I didn't have to teach it to her. I didn't train her, like Ringo, my dog, he knows my voice because I trained him to know my voice. I would take a treat and I would hold it on his nose and I would say, Ringo, 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 and I would give him the treat, right? That's how that worked. I didn't do that with my daughter. I didn't hold the bottle and go, you know, Lydia, Lydia, to teach her the sound of my voice. She intrinsically knew it. Why? Why did Lydia intrinsically know my voice? Because she's mine. Because she's my daughter. Just as we are the sons and daughters of God, we intrinsically know the voice of Jesus. We intrinsically know the voice of the Father. So so as Jesus shows up and he proclaims his message, and then he gives that message to us to then go out and proclaim, there will be people who do not respond. Why don't they respond? Because they're not his sheep. There will be people who do respond to the voice of God, to the sound of God, to the message of God's preached word, um, because they are his sheep. Intrinsically, they recognize the voice of God by virtue of them being his sheep. Um, So this is what Jesus tells them. Plainly tell us. Plainly tell us. And, And he says, well, you know what? I've already plainly told you. And the problem is, um, some of you simply aren't gonna come to me because my words are foolishness to you. They they don't make any sense to you. And you guys have realized this. Those of you who share your faith often, those of you who talk to other people about Jesus, you'll start talking about Jesus and how he's changed your life and, and how he can change their life too. And they just look at you like you are nuts. It's not about stuff. It's about Jesus. It's not about your big house. It's not about your job. And, and they're like, are you crazy? That, that, that means everything. Family and career. That is the capstone. That, that is it. That is the highest and the greatest, your, your family and your career. And we're going, no, 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 no. It's Jesus. And they're like, Pfft. they don't get it. They can't hear you. Now, doesn't mean you should stop saying it to them but some people just don't get it. Jesus says, I, I, I told you plainly, but some of you just aren't gonna get it because you're not my sheep. Now, what Jesus is about to do um, is unlock uh, a, a very interesting and, and progressive way to look at our salvation, okay? This is how it happens. This is now where we're about to get into uh, perseverance of the saints, okay? So uh, here's what, let's just look back at 27 through 30. I'm just gonna read it again. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one, okay? Number one, here's what I want you to see. Number one, his sheep will come, okay? I speak, they they hear me. They're gonna follow me without a doubt. Intrinsically, his sheep will hear his voice by virtue of being sheep, and they will come. Number one, um, his sheep will come. Number two, Jesus will not lose them. Okay, the sheep are going to come; they will come. Number two, Jesus will not lose them. Did you see the the trifecta of emphatic statements there? Look look back at 28. I will give them eternal life. They will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. That is three emphatic, I'm going to give them eternal life. They will not perish, meaning um, at the last days or the judgment, when God shows back up, the wrath of God will not rain down on them and they will not be separated from me in a real place called hell what's going to happen to them is they're going to go be with me. They're not going to perish. So I'm going to give them eternal life. They will not perish, and they will not be snatched out of my hand. So the sheep are going to come. When the sheep come, Jesus will not lose any of them. And thirdly, what we see in here, this happens by the greatness of God. Did you see that in 29? 29? My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. So, how do the sheep come? How does Jesus not lose any of them? By virtue of the greatness of the Father. So, here's a question Can Satan and demons rally? Can they get all of them together and charge and storm the gates of heaven and snatch souls away from God? Absolutely not. Why? Because of the greatness of God. That's why they can't. In the same way, can your fear and can your doubt snatch yourself out of the hand of God? Can your sin and your shame snatch you out of the hand of God? No. Then why do we act that way? Why do I think that way sometimes? Am I alone here? Am I the only one who walks in rebellion, walks in stupidity, I I get hard-headed, I get stubborn, uh, stiff-necked, I'm walking in sin, and and I do something dumb, and then inside of my heart I go, am I out of the hands of the Father? Have I lost my salvation? I've been a Christian a really long time, I've been preaching for six years, okay? Longer than that. Uh, But I, I still catch myself my, my brain still does that. My brain still sometimes shifts into that gear that, that, that's going, he's unpleased with you. He's really irritated at you right now. You better work harder. You better do more. I, I have eternal life. I, I cannot be snatched out of his hand. Why? Because of the greatness of the Father. And so not all of the uh, principalities of darkness storming the gates of heaven, they can't snatch me out of the hand of the Father because of His great love and because of His great might and no sin that I could ever walk in, no thing that I could ever think, no act that I could ever do is ever going to remove me out of the loving hands of the Father. It simply won't happen. It will not happen. Okay? Now, Um, Some people think this is a very dangerous teaching. Now, if I sit here and say, no sin that you ever commit will ever take you out of the hand of the Father, right? Some of you guys are going, after church, we're going to strip club. (laughs) We're about to go party right now, because no matter what I do, I can't be snatched out of the hand of the Father. Right? So, so some people believe that that is where this teaching leads, that because you can't lose your salvation, because Jesus makes these three emphatic statements, you, I mean, you, you're just free to go do whatever you want. You got your get out of hell free card, and, and now you can just get to go do whatever you want. Um, the, the problem is uh, that that is absolutely um, incorrect. Because as we stated before, those whom taste Those whom see, those whom experience Jesus, that is absolutely not the way they think. Those things might be enticing for a moment. Those things might be interesting for a season, but they will quickly lose their flavor. They lose their saltiness. They lose their allure. And so the true believer, because they've seen and tasted Christ, doesn't in their heart go, I'm once saved, always saved. I get to go do whatever I want. What happens in the heart of the true believer is how glorious a Savior, how loving a God to save me, not only save me, but to keep me. Why would I ever want to run? Okay, um, so here's a good analogy. Uh, some of you have tasted um, the amazing steak that I make. Okay, raise your hand if you've eaten the Kirk McDonald steak. Okay, some of you have, very good. Now, for those of you that have tasted that, you don't desire any other steak. (laughs) You may go to a restaurant and order another steak, but it's not as good. After that, you regret it. You regret having eaten that steak from Longhorns because it simply doesn't match up. And then after that, the waitress brings the bill and you have to pay for it. It's exactly the same way. We might walk away from Jesus, but once we walk in something that is outside of Jesus, it doesn't taste as good. It is not as awesome as we remembered it. And then after that, we regret it. And then after that, we have to pay for it. It, It's exactly the same way. So, So it's not, I wanna erase this picture from your mind. It's not as if God is just hanging on to us and we just get to lay there and just flop around. He's got me, I can do whatever I want. But rather, God is hanging on to us, and out of sheer love and adoration, we hold on to him for dear life. Not that our grip on him matters as far as our overall salvation, but because we get to, because we love him, we hang on to him. As I hold my newborn daughter in my arms, she will take her tiny little hand and she will hold on to my thumb. Or she will reach up and grab onto my shirt. Because she loves me and she wants to hold me. If she lets go, am I going to let go? No, absolutely not. Her hanging on to me has no bearing on whether I hang on to her. I hang on to her because I love her and because she's mine. And she holds on to me because I'm her daddy. So, so we hang on to him, not by virtue of I have to hang on to him or he'll let go of me. But we hold on to him because he's our daddy. Because we love him. Because we get to. That's, that's, why, we, that's why we do that. Okay, let's, let's move. Um, verses uh, 31 through uh, 34. You know what? Let's not do that. Let's not move. Let's go back to verse 30. Because there's something here I've got to get. Can't leave it. Verse 30. I and the Father are one. So he concludes all of this with, I and the Father are one. This is the, the big uh, piece of the text. That, that, that's why I said I can't leave this out. I and the Father are one. So he, he makes this statement. Now, what does he mean by that? Let's look at it in two ways. One, in the context of what he's saying. Okay, So he makes these big statements. You, you will never get snatched out of my hand. You have eternal life. I and the Father are one. Okay, So in the context of what he's saying, he's saying, the Father and I are united in our preserving your salvation. Let me say that again. When he says, I and the Father are one, he is saying, me and the Father are united together in preserving your faith. Let me show you that. Uh, Look back at um, 28. I give them eternal life. And they will never perish, for no one will snatch them out of whose hand? My hand. Whose hand is that? Jesus. Jesus' hand. Now look at verse 29. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So, so I am in Jesus' hand. I am in the Father's hand. They are one in union in the sense that both of them are holding on to my salvation. It is in their hand as a collective Trinitarian Godhead effort of hanging on to my salvation. I and the Father are one. So that's the context, that's the narrow focus, the broad focus of what he's saying is I am also united to God in such a way that no one else is united to him. Him and I are one in the sense that no one else is one like him and I are one, okay? So I can say I'm one with God, okay? So before you start throwing rocks at me as a heretic, I can say I'm one with God in mission, I'm about making disciples. God's about making disciples. Um, God the Father and I are one in affection, meaning um, I I love my wife, I love Jesus, I love uh, this church. God the Father loves all those things too. So God the Father and me, Kurt McDonald, we're one in mission, we're one in um, affection. But what Jesus is saying is that he is one in a unique way that no other person is one with the father like that. Okay, so narrow, narrow focus. Me and the father are one in the sense that we both hang on to your salvation. Broad context, me and the father are one in a sense that I am equal to God. That's what the Jews hear, and here's how they respond. Verse 31 the Jews picked up stones to stone him. And Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these are you going to stone me? And the Jews answered him, It is not for the good works that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. I want you to get the violentness of what's happening here. This isn't like, um, like you go pick up seashells on the beach, like gathering, you know, just, oh, there's one. Oh, here's another. That, that is not how these guys are picking up stones. They're not meandering through the temple, oh, I've found a rock to throw at Christ. This is violent. This is cursing. This is shoving. This is getting stones, gnashing teeth. We've got him cornered, and we're going to throw rocks at him until blood pours from his ears, and he is dead, They are extremely angry at the fact that he said, I and the Father are one. Why? Because it was nails down a chalkboard. Three times a day, the Jews would recite a prayer called the Shema. It's found in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And Jesus just said, I and the Father are one. The Jews understand Jesus to be saying, I am equal with God. That's the claim he made. That's what they understand. Um, and, And so they pick up stones to stone him. Jesus says, why are you guys picking up stones to stone me? What good work have I done? Was it when I healed the guy? Was it when I fed everyone bread? What is it? What work are you doing this for? What, what have I said to offend you? And they said, you, a mere man, make yourself to be God. And so they pick up stones to stone him. Here's Jesus' reply, uh, verse 34. Jesus answered, it is, not written in your, is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came... And scripture cannot be broken. Do you say of him whom the father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the son of God? Did anyone just go cross-eyed? I did a little bit. Okay. Um, Wow. Is it not written in your law? Let's think very deeply here. Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? That's very confusing. Are we now a polytheistic religion? Did Jesus just say that all people are gods like other false religions believe? I don't think so. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? Okay. Okay. What in the world is Jesus talking about? Now, this is where the doctrine uh, of perspicuity comes in handy. Okay, what in the world did I just say? Um, Perspicuity. When you come upon a really confusing text, you go look at other texts that are more clear to help you understand the really confusing one. Okay, no idea what this says. Let's go find some text that talks about this so we can understand it. Okay, so is God teaching, is Jesus teaching polytheism, that there are many gods? I said you're gods. Okay, uh, we would look to, what's the verse that I just quoted? Deuteronomy 6, 4, hero Israel, our God is one. Uh, Isaiah chapter uh, 43 and Isaiah chapter 44 will declare that there is one God. In James chapter 2, it will declare there is one God. So is Jesus teaching polytheism? No, he he must be meaning something else, okay? We need to see that Jesus is making an argument from lesser to greater, okay? Jesus is making an argument from lesser to greater, and he does it by using the Psalms. Now, let's go back and look at the Psalm. Let's go back and look at the Psalm that he is quoting so that we don't think that Jesus is a heretic, okay? Psalm 82, here's what Jesus quotes, Psalm 82, I'm going to read 1 through 7. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of God's, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked, give justice to the weak and the fatherless, maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute, rescue the weak and the needy, deliver from the hand of the wicked? Down in verse 6. I said you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like a prince. Okay, so walk with me here. Stick with me. I'm going to push through this fast because we still got to do application. Um, here, here's, here's what's happening. God, uh, Jesus is making an argument from lesser to greater. Here we see um, the word gods used for rulers. It is little g, gods. He says, I sit among the divine council, so I rule over these people. God gives us authority um, to function here on the earth over his creation, okay? So in a way, emphasize that word, in a way, we are little gods. Not divine, not all-knowing, not all-powerful. We are little g, given authority over stuff here on the earth, That's what it means. It's not talking about divineness, holiness, um, all the attributes of God, but it's just another way to say a ruler over stuff, okay? But it does use the word gods, right? So here's here's Jesus' argument, okay? So the Scripture calls rulers little g-gods. I've been consecrated and set apart by God So shouldn't I, Jesus, all the more be called capital G, God? Do you see what he's saying there? Did you guys follow that? So so he's saying the scripture uses this word, little g, gods, um, and and it refers to humans when it says it. So I've been consecrated, set apart by God. Uh, I've been sent on a mission by God. I am equal with him. So shouldn't I be called capital G, God, all the more? Do you see him making the argument from less to greater let me give you an example you guys remember the movie crocodile dundee the guy pulls out the little tiny knife crocodile D, crocodile dundee says that's not a knife this is a knife do you see the argument from small to greater right light beer versus craft beer small to greater right do, do you see that tea that we drink here in America versus tea that they drink in Britain, right? They, they will say that that's, you know, that's not tea. It is tea, but they're saying that's not tea. This is tea, right? Do you guys get that? You understand what Jesus is saying here? He, he's making the argument from less. You guys are given authority over stuff and it's used the word gods. I've been given authority over the entire universe as equality with God the Father. I think I'm entitled to call myself God. So put the rocks down. That's what he's saying. So he he makes this argument from Scripture, um, I think, to buy himself some time because he wants to give them the gospel one more time. He buys himself time with this complicated God's God argument because he wants to beg them and plead with them to come to him. Let's look at the rest of the text. Verse 37, If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me, but, if, uh, but believe the works that you may know and understand the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. <sighs> Just come to me. Just 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 get on the journey of believing in me. If you can't believe in me, Jesus, if, I mean, if, if I'm some sort of stumbling block here, can't you look to the works that I've done? Can't you look to the fact that I heal people, that I love people? Can't you see my teaching that people are coming and they're having their lives changed? Can't you, I mean, do you see that Jesus is just begging and pleading with guys holding rocks who are ready to kill him? If you can't believe in me, just believe in the works. Just just start on the journey of, of knowing me. How gracious is our God? How loving is he that the men who take rocks to stone him, he is willing to maneuver some type of Old Testament psalm verse. I'm going to use this real quick so that I can buy myself some time to beg and plead with them just to come to me. If you guys would just get on the journey of coming closer to me. If you can't believe in me, just believe in my works. Just start, just start believing. Just come a little bit. Just take a little step closer to me. That's what what Jesus says to these men. Um, Let's look at some application. Number one, walk in the confidence of your eternal security. Walk in the confidence of your eternal security. You don't have to walk around going, does God have me? Is he going to drop me? Is he going to lose me? No. Jesus and God the Father and God the Holy Spirit are working together as the triune Godhead to hold you. And nothing is greater than them. They cannot lose you. They cannot drop you. Nothing that you say, do, um, walk in will ever make them drop you. So, application number two, hold on to him with all of your might. Because he is holding you and will never drop you, press into him. Hold on to him. Breathe him in. Taste him. And see that he is good. Don't just say, he's got me. I get to go do whatever I want. But say, he's got me. Let me hold on to him with every fiber of my being. Lastly, after hearing the word of God taught, don't leave here unchanged. Jesus tells the Pharisees again and again and again. He gives them the gospel. He tells them to come. He begs them to come. He says, "Some of you won't come because you're not my sheep, but I'm still going to beg you to come. Those who do come, I'm going to hold them in my hand forever. So, won't you come?" Um, so, so after hearing the word of God taught, don't leave here unchanged. Jesus begs and begs and begs. Um, How many times have we come here? How many times has the pastor himself shown up here on a Sunday night and left here unchanged? I'm guilty. And so I beg you here tonight, don't leave here unchanged. In closing, look back up at verse 38. But if I do, but if I do them enough, you do not believe me. Believe the works that you may, here's what I want you to see at the very end of the verse. Believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. That word know and understand in the Greek is actually exactly the same. I want you to know and to know more. I want you to know and to know. I want you to understand and understand. I want you to press in and press in some more. I want you to keep pressing in. I want you to become more and more and more like me, more and more and more like Jesus. Jesus presses in all the way to the cross. And he lays his life down for the sheep, and he holds on to the sheep. And he never lets go of the sheep so that we can know him and know him and know him and keep knowing him more and more and more. That's my prayer for you. That's my hope for you. Let me pray. Father, thank you for teaching us your gospel, for showing it to us again and showing it to us again. And after that, showing it to us one more time Father, thank you that I am in your hands, that you will never let me go. Father, I pray that these people would leave out of here this week with the greatest confidence, with the greatest assurance that you will never let them go. And that that confidence and that assurance would then transfer or translate into them, holding onto you with all of their might, wrapping their arms around you and squeezing you and holding you and tasting and seeing that you are good, experiencing the fullness of what it means to be a Christian. Let these people not live some kind of boring, mundane, silly, foolish walk with you, but let them walk in joy and happiness and greatness of knowing and knowing And knowing more and knowing more deeply the Savior, Jesus Christ, who's come to lay down his life for the sheep, to hold on to the sheep, and to never let them go. ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.